there is a, a disinformation program literally for everyone, no matter who you are and what, what your interests are, uh, what your beliefs are, uh, which, which way you're focusing. There is a website set up just for you to take you in and to vector your thinking and your attention into the way that they want you to think. You are listening to Radio Free Signs of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of an occupied America. Welcome to this week's Signs of the Times podcast. I'm Henry. I'm Joe. I'm Scott. And we have with us this week our special guest, Jason Knight. It's not like special ed, is it? In any case, you're very welcome, Jason. We know you're excited to be here. Yeah, I'm jumping for joy. No, I am. I'm very excited to be here. This week, we are going to be looking at sport, current affairs, and movies. Following this week's uh, brouhaha over the headbutting incident with French football star Zidane at the World Cup against Italy last Sunday. We are going to be looking at some of the implications, political and otherwise, of this. Then we want to take a look at the crimes that are being committed in Palestine and Lebanon by Yahweh's stormtroopers. And we're going to finish up with a discussion of films that you must see if you want to understand our reality. So to begin, the topic of Zidane and the headbutt. We were all watching it here last week, and we were all rather stunned to see Zidane very, very effectively use his head as a weapon. Well, you know, again. I kind of I disagreed with the whole red card thing because, I mean, when you think about it, he was really kind of obeying the rules of soccer, you know, because he wasn't touching them with his hands. You know, he was using his head. So, so I it think wasn't that, a foul. Was there was no handball. <laughs> it was no okay. hands touching the ball. So I think that he was really, you know, keeping with the spirit of soccer by hitting him with his head. Well, maybe we should recap a bit the incident for those people who are not aware of it. In the World Cup final between France and Italy, it went into overtime with a score of 1-1. to And at the 110th minute, the Italian player Materazzi was knocked over in some way. And in the replays, you saw Materazzi and Zidane walking side by side with Zidane kind of pulling away. And you could see that Materazzi was saying something to Zidane. And at one point, Zidane turned around and lowered his head and delivered a swift blow to the chest that knocked Maserati off his feet. And the speculation was, you know, why the announcers on the French television were going, pourquoi, pourquoi, why, why would he do something like this? This was Zidane's final football match. He's been uh, a major star, not only in France, but the world over for, for several years. He was one of the the principal uh, stars of the French team when they won the World Cup in 1998 against Brazil. He had retired in 2004 and then came back to the French national team in 2005 after having some sort of a strange experience where in the middle of the night he heard a voice telling him that he should return to the French national team. 
which is a whole story in itself. The speculation started right after the match as to what Matarazzi could have possibly said to Zidane, and several newspapers and news organizations hired lip readers to look closely at the videotape. We imagine that somebody must have an audio tape of what was actually said in a media event such as that. It's hard to imagine that there wasn't somebody with a boom microphone of some sort that would be able to to catch the exact words. The speculation was that Matarazzi had been insulting Zidane's sister, insulting his mother, had called him a dirty Arab terrorist, and that finally Zidane had cracked. So then the question becomes, should he have done it? He's a major figure who many, many people look up to, kids look up to him, and there he goes, seems to go crazy on the, on the pitch and take out another player. Laura wrote an editorial about this event early in the week, and it's become one of the more uh, hotly debated subjects on the Signs of the Times forum, with people defending Zidane, people criticizing him. Well, I you, think what you got to ask yourself is, what would you have done, you know? At a certain point, does somebody's verbal jibes become a little bit too much for you to take? And we also have to remember that Zidane was injured um, not too too long before that. So, I mean, he was probably really tired and in pain and, you know, Matarazzi was riding him and, you know, insulting him. Apparently one of the, the things, one of the people claimed that he was, that uh, Matarazzi's exact words were, you are the, the son of a, of a terrorist whore. And, of course, on a French interview, he said, bon oui. You know, he said, of course, you know, that was, that was what he had said. So... Well, although it's claimed that he... Or, or Zidane has claimed in a recent uh, interview on television that that that, that uh, Matarazzi didn't uh, call him a terrorist, didn't use the word terrorist. But we kind of suspect that um, he was it was suggested to him, or he was uh, put under some pressure. PR wash. Put our, well, put under some pressure not to kind of increase tensions or to, because that would be a very uh, quite a provocative thing for for him to uh, admit uh, that, that that Matarazzi said to him so uh, and FIFA the World Football yeah, the Association has very explicit rules against racist against racist and particularly you can insult other players but just don't be racist yeah that. but and, but I, th- I think it it it, it was very um it, it was potentially uh, bigger than than the normal kind of uh, racist comments that that are quite common in football because of the implications and this is what we've been that Laura wrote about in her article and this is um what we've been discussing on the, on our forum is that uh, there were kind of implications given the, the 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 current political climate and what's going on in Israel because obviously uh, Zidane is Muslim and there is a war on essentially Muslim terrorism going on, right. and Israel is conducting a war on it's a war on Arabs, Arabs. Well, you Muslim can, terrorists. You can also add in the extra part of you know the there was previously implications that his father fought for France in the Algerian independence wars. So you know, and of course they were pretty much disproven completely. You know, but uh, it, ha- it was something that was probably you know weighed heavily on him to have his father accused of, of fighting for the other side by mm-hmm. his, you know, native people. So if Monterazzi did, in fact, call him the, the son of a, of a terrorist whore, then, of course, that's going to rub even deeper than just the fact of the current political climate. 
And, and speaking of the current political climate, uh, those of you who are uh, not familiar with uh, the problems in France at the moment, um, they have there's, there have been a series of riots, uh, which basically mostly uh, mostly poor and uh, to a large extent Arab youth were rioting in various cities. This was last November. Yeah, because obviously that that's that's the kind of point I'm trying to make as well. Um, that this comment, if it was uh, a racial comment made by Malarazzi, which it seems to be against Sudan, it was far more than the typical kind of um, comments that are heard by footballers or exchange, exchange between footballers or even between fans and footballers on the pitch all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Because there are so many angles to it, and particularly at this point in time, it's, it's a very sensitive subject. And as Scott mentioned, given the fact that there is a lot of tension in, uh, in, in, in France with the 10 million French citizens who are of, of largely Algerian or African parentage, there's a lot of friction there because, they, as Scott mentioned, they live in, uh, they're largely in, uh, living in poorer areas of France. And um, it, just, it just, for me, the whole thing uh, was problematic from the point of view of the authorities and that... This is why I think that Zidane was probably told not to say or to deny that uh, the terrorist word was used against him when in fact it was. And just to, 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 to make the point, and this is the point, I just want to stress this point because this is the point that we're trying to make on our forum and a lot of people uh, don't seem to be getting it, is that there are, strangely enough, there seems to be a very clear parallel that can be made between what happened on that pitch and what, what is happening in Israel and in the Middle East right now. Henry, you were discussing or talking earlier on about uh, something that Zidane said just recently in another interview over the over the issue. Yeah, last night he appeared uh, on two French television stations to kind of explain the incident. And in one of them, he made the comment, my action was inexcusable. And then he continued, but the real guilty need to be sanctioned because the guilty party is the one who provokes yeah so i mean that i mean you could say that uh, <laughs> very very easily does about, that describe what's going on yeah about in the middle east about about the fact that that uh, hamas and uh, lebanese hezbollah and the palestinians are all being provoked uh, in the same way that Zidane was provoked on the pitch, and they're being provoked in essentially th- through the same uh, kind of um, slur, uh, which is which is the terrorist slur that all Muslims or all Arabs are terrorists. Exactly, and and they are responding. They are obviously reacting because obviously it's much worse for them than, than it was for Zidane. But because <coughs> their lives are being threatened mm-hmm. by this provocation and this. Uh, the, the, these uh, these attacks that uh, Israel is, is is committing against them. And it's being done under the aegis of the idea that they are Muslim terrorists, all of them. Therefore, the people in the West can accept it. And the other parallel is the fact that Malarazzi has a Star of David tattoo on his arm with Hebrew text. So, I mean, it is pretty Talk clear. about symbolism. You, it is pretty symbolic. You had a guy uh, with a Star of David tattoo on his arm calling an Arab on the pitch a uh, uh, son of a terrorist whore and provoking him to uh, respond and attack or defend himself. And then the the Muslim or the Arab getting condemned 
and sent off the pitch or, or, right, or, yeah. or uh, slated for it. And that's exactly what's happening in the Middle East. And this comes right after the whole uh, Danish thing. You remember the cartoon with Muhammad, yeah. you know, and it was was essentially the, the same kind of goading exactly, you know, yeah. from other people to get them to. And surprisingly, I think the reaction from, from the Arab population was less than what was expected. And then because, I mean, you know, it's just generally not cool to, to be so coarse about somebody's, you know, religious icons. You know, sometimes we make fun of, of Christianity, but we are from Christian families, so we sort of have a, you know, a different right, you know, kind of a right, but we don't really go around doing that kind of stuff. It's kind of rude, you know, so you can, and, and that kind of thing at this time, you know, the friction that's already there, that it's like, it's like tossing a match into a room full of, you know, gunpowder. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all this little stuff, you know, the, the, the headbutt against Matarazzi. It's just... You know, it's just constant goading. It's this never-ending pressure, this constant friction that they're mm-hmm. applying to, to the Arab populations that is just, you know, they're frantic. They're, they're backed up against the wall, and they're... They're responding, right? They're, they're responding. And, and, and what Zidane is saying when he's saying that the provoker is the one who's the real guilty party, then that, that's just really profound it's and com- true. Completely true, yeah. And but it's not represented in the media. You know, I mean, that's never, that angle is never presented in the mainstream media. One of the things that you hear, one of the criticisms of Zidane and. We should say that in a poll that was taken this week, 61% of the, the French people who responded said that they kind of supported Zidane. So I think this is significant. But what I wanted to bring up was, in a sense, the kind of psychopathic character of aspects of professional sports where it is taken as being completely reasonable and part of the game that you can be insulted and provoked in this way when you're out trying to to play. Mm -hmm. And this is accepted by everybody the world over as the way professional sports are played, and it is completely natural that you insult your opponent and you goad them in whatever way you can, that you are goaded, and you're supposed to, to rise above this. And in a certain sense, what Zidane was saying, no, there is something more important than a sports match than a football game, mm-hmm. even the World Cup, and that's human dignity. Mm-hmm. And he was saying there is a limit over which I am not going to take it, mm-hmm. and I'm going to stand up and say no. Mm-hmm. And so it's been this very curious thing where there was this movement to idolize Zidane as the great kind of consummate sports hero. And when he got himself thrown out of the game, that all crumbled. And yet what you get then instead is the emergence of a hero just who is a human being who is willing to say no to the psychopathic environment in which mm-hmm. he's living. It's a perfect analogy. It's a perfect example of, of what we talk about on the, on the science page and on the website in terms of psychopathy because just, just imagine the scenario where you have a certain percentage of psychopaths, a certain percentage of psychopaths who are, uh, who are football, professional football players. And as psychopaths, they have no, essentially no emotion. They don't feel emotion. They Uh, they don't feel, yeah, they don't feel human emotion and they have no conscience. They're willing to do anything to win. Yeah, they they can do anything. They can do it. But at the same time, you have people who have, who have a capacity to feel human emotion and be hurt uh, by, by, by comments or by uh, slurs made against them. And, uh, I mean, who's going to win in that situation? You've got a bunch of psychopaths running around the pitch, 
calling, shouting out, you know, uh, all sorts of well, things about people, between. other players' mothers and stuff. And, and when it's shouted at them, they go, hey, cool, you know, yeah, my mom is a, a, a terrorist <laughs> or, you know. Or they agree because they ha- they're essentially, they, they have no conscience right. and no human emotion. Uh, but the people who do are the ones who are going to explode and, and, and can only take so much. And then they're going to react, and they're the ones who get sent off. So, and it's a perfect example of the way it works in politics, the way it works in the judicial system, and, and, and it's a perfect example of what's uh, of what's going on in in Israel at the moment as well. Yeah, well, I mean, the, you know, that that analogy is basically like you know a person wearing a bulletproof breast and, and a person who isn't, you know, and shooting at each other. You know, of course, the person who is mm. not going to feel it. You know, it's not going yeah. to hurt him. So the, the point is that the system, even into football is set up to ensure the, 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 that, that psychopathic values uh, win the day, that, that they are perpetuated. Because, you know, you see this even on our forum, uh, as we're mentioning uh, about the discussion, where people are saying, oh, you know, they're, they're trying to, to justify this kind of, uh, these kind of attacks, these kind of comments and, and, and these racist and very, very evil comments that are made by footballers to each other, and they're saying, "Hey, it's just football, you know. It's, it's just, mm. just, just let you, just, just you should be is. able to just accept that, you know." Mm. And it's these are people who who essentially have been corrupted. Uh, their sense of conscience, their sense of morality, has been corrupted by these these psychopathic values. Where you're you're told that when someone turns around and calls your uh, your mother a terrorist whore, that you should just accept it and get on with it, and you shouldn't. This is part of the game. <laughs> They're, these are the values that are being spread around. And these are the same values that are allowing a large number of people in Western Europe to sit back and watch what's going on in Palestine, uh, uh, in the Middle East, and complacently kind of say, well, they are terrorists after all, aren't they? So, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Americans, for the most part, live in a culture where First of all, you know, you have this, this concept of co- capital punishment in America, you know, where, where a murderer gets murdered, you know, type of thing. So you can't help but being trained from a young age to, you know, start saying that people deserve what they get. And then all of a sudden it's very easy to, to, to say that about someone that you don't have to, you don't have to pull the switch. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem is, is that most of the Americans, most of the voting public and, and most of even Europe, they're not really directly affected by that kind of conflict, so it's very easy for them to say, you know, it's not me, you know, it's like the zombie song from the Cranberries, it's not me, it's not my family. But with someone like Zizou, you know, he's Muslim, he comes from Algeria, you know, they had the independence war with France, you know, he's been through some tough times, you know, and he's sitting there getting ridden by Matarazzi, and he reacts, and he headbutts him. And, uh, people don't realize, people don't realize the, the effect that... Uh, uh, all of the, the demonization of Muslims that has resulted uh, from the 9-11 attacks, uh, they don't realize the effect that that has on ordinary, on ordinary Muslim people. I mean, people in the UK, people in France, people in Spain who are Muslims and who are obviously Muslims, Muslims because of the way they dress are, are probably once or, or, or more than once every day, they're treated like, like terrorists. Right, by yeah. someone, Give it the and, and, and can you imagine living? I mean, it, it would be like be like a, a be like being a, it would be like being a black in in uh, in, in South United Africa, States. in the uh, United States, or no, but under an apartheid re- regime in South right. Africa, that kind of thing right. would seriously affect you after a while. And 
you can imagine that Zidane is very aware of that as as part of he may not be sub- subjected to it. But he grew up in but, one of those neighborhoods. Yes, and yeah. but he may not have yeah. been subjected to it in the same way as ordinary people since 9-11, but he certainly identifies with it because he, he describes himself as a non-practicing Muslim and there's an identity there or an identification with his, his the Muslim people. Mm. So he's very aware of it, as, as oh, all yeah. Muslims are. And uh, for, for Matarazzi to turn around and say this on the pitch, I mean... I can fully understand that that it, it would have been the one thing he could have he could have taken anything else, right. but f- to use that and it probably ju- it just brought all of the other stuff flooding and back. To it was just to his the mother, last, who yeah, had, especially was, yeah. who had gone to hospital that day, mm-hmm. and who had been operated on not long before. And these are people; well, these aren't Muslims. The U.S. government and the Israeli government is trying to separate humanity into groups and have. One group of humanity, i.e. Christians in the West, essentially sanction the murder of another group of, of, of human beings. And the people who are doing this are the people who are not really human beings in terms of their ability uh, to, to feel that, that human empathize. emotion and to empathize. Yeah. And, and people don't realize this. And we get people coming on our forum and they're essentially apologists for this kind of psychopathic thinking. Right. And they don't realize that they it's us against them. It's, it's the ordinary people against the psychopathic uh, elite. Right. And, uh, but people are falling into the trap of allowing themselves to be divided and to essentially, I mean, you've got 130,000 U.S. Uh, young U.S. troops in, in, in Iraq killing what are essentially just other ordinary human beings at the behest of a bunch of guys in government. Right. That's how it works. Yeah, well, I mean, on the topic of of the apathy and uh, of the people in the forum and the and the talk that um, Z- Zizou shouldn't have reacted that way because of name calling, and you know, there's an old rhyme that sh- every American learns as a child, and we sing it all the time: "Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me." But that's ridiculous, you know. Words do hurt. Words are very real things, you know. Yeah. And uh, what what Matarazzi said, if you know, if that's what he said, and I will, I, I believe that that's what he said. You know, I mean, I think that that's that's a pretty reasonable assumption of, yeah. of what was said. It would probably be the most logical thing for someone like Matarazzi to say in the current climate. Yeah, would and of be course he denied it. Yeah, of course he denied it profusely. But Matarazzi is obviously a liar because Matarazzi, in his defense, said that I would never say anything about uh, Zidane. Hero. No, so I would cool. never say anything about Zidane because he's my my hero. Yeah, and and if yeah, I mean, you don't even have to hear what he said. All you have to do is watch. Uh, what he did, which uh, which is uh, he, he was grabbing and pulling and harassing Zidane. Is that what you do to your hero? The right. guy is obviously a liar. Right. So we can say that with, with complete uh, certainty. And from uh, there... <clears throat> well, not only that, but also the fact that you have these various professional lip readers who had come forward and said, yes, this is what he said. And I mean, yeah. you, you don't you don't get to be a professional lip reader if you you know have no idea you what people are saying. You fail 90% of the time, you know. <laughs> yeah. So obviously the person who they're talking about. But... Uh, yeah, so that's the... Have you got so let's offer a salute to Zinedine Zidane for taking a stand. For taking a stand for Zizus. For taking a stand, you know, because he did take a stand and it's it's um it's being promoted all around the world and particularly in Western Europe and America that you shouldn't take a stand. That you shouldn't and you shouldn't stand up for yourself or for for values that you hold dear, that you should just kind of lie back and yeah. allow your mind and your sense of uh, conscience to be corrupted. And as we've been trying to, to do in this discussion, to tie it to what's going on in Palestine at the moment, this is exactly, there, 
no one in the world is standing up and saying what is going on in Palestine, the genocide that Israel is committing on the Palestinians is a crime, it yeah. is a horror, it's be, and it shouldn't happen. Yeah, and, and no one's saying that. Nobody's saying their anything. conscience has been watered down to the point where they're, they're useless. They, they can't even stand up and say something's wrong. You ask someone about what's going on in Palestine, they say, well, you know, they kind of are terrorists, aren't they? And it's, and it's like, who told you they were terrorists? Have you it? ever been there? Have you ever lived there? Have you, do you know anything about the situation? No. Uh, but, you know, George Bush says they're terrorists. And, and he says Israel has the right to defend itself. Yeah, of course, yeah. All these kind or, of power moralisms, you know. Well, uh, I mean, that, that does kind of come down to the question is, do you have the right to kill people when you're defending yourself? But Israel's not defending itself. Right, right, right. I mean, that's that... It's doing... Do it's you have doing, the right to provoke... preemptive strike type stuff where it's saying that they're going to attack, so we're going to go in and attack first. They're setting them up to be knocked you know, down, basically, you know what I mean? But you know, There's I a mean, lot of discussion of the rocket attacks that supposedly come out of uh, the Gaza Strip. Yeah. And these are homemade artisanal rockets that have killed four people. Israel kills more people every day than these rockets have killed in the last few years. Yes, so they're obviously not a threat. Israel is armed to the teeth by the United States. It has one of the most advanced armies in the world, and it is using full force but Israel against is a victim. civilian. But Israel portrays itself as a victim. And what's been coming out this week is that they're now using a new arm on Palestinian civilians civilian populations that is tearing limbs off and it is burning the skin and the Palestinian doctors have never seen anything like this. It is something that is impossible to treat. Here's what I would ask any of our listeners to 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 conduct a little test on themselves and to ask themselves a question or to think about uh, their, their opinions. If they were asked about uh, what's going on in Israel... Uh, in Palestine uh, and what's going on in Iraq, uh, do they? Would they? Be, when when you analyze your your opinions, are they clear cut? Are you able to say yes, it's wrong, or is it? Do you have kind of oh well, it's it's not black and white. There's a gray area. Blah blah. blah. If that's the case, then you have a been denied the facts of what's happening, and or b your mind has been corrupted, and your own sense of conscience and your own humanity has been watered down by something. Because for to hold an opinion about what's going on in Iraq or Palestine that is not 100% behind the victims, the very clear victims, means that you are not in touch with your, your humanity, your claimed humanity. Because, let me give an example. Last night... I think, or Wednesday, Wednesday night, uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, the Israeli Air Force dropped a one-quarter ton bomb on a, a, a residential apartment, uh, two, two, two or three stories. And they killed uh, a mother, a father, and seven children. And they said, we didn't know there was anybody in the building. They said, but, uh, yeah, I mean... I mean, it's just garbage. Since when did people well, I read a figure so today, you know, what's going on for the last week or 10 days in Gaza is horrifying. But even before that, the week of the 6th to the 12th of June, this is before things started to get really, really out of hand. But that week, 79 Palestinians were killed. 
Mm-hmm. And 79 Palestinians, that's just in a regular, normal uh, death by attrition, genocide by attrition week. 79 Palestinians murdered brutally by these savages. And we see how the people, people in America, people in Europe, people around the world are completely, they're, they're responsive, they're, they're completely controlled by the mainstream media. Their responses, the mainstream media and the government can elicit a response in an individual person. That's how complete their control is. That by b- Because they haven't been playing up the stuff that Henry's just mentioned. If they did, they could play it up in such a way that everybody would be horrified. People would be feeling deep down this, this emotion. And it would be because of what the mainstream media said. But because they're not doing that, people aren't feeling it. They're just... They, they, they don't know what's happening or they're, they're getting uh, an angle on it which suggests that Israel is a victim so they can forget about the fact that 79 Palestinians were murdered. So it's, 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 it's just incredible how complete the control uh, that the media has over individual people's lives, over what they think and what they do and what they feel. It's, it's, it's almost uh, beyond uh, belief. Yeah. So, I mean, talking about psychopathy, we talk about psychopathy a lot. And just to clarify for people what psychopathy is, psychopathy is not some catchphrase that we use, just uh, a coverall to any time any, anybody in power or anywhere does something wrong, we say, oh, it's psychopathy. Psychopathy is something that has been studied scientifically, and there are conclusive uh, results from studies which show that there are people, human beings, a lot of them, who do not appear to possess a capacity to empathize with another human being. They and do not have the normal range of emotions, if any emotion, emotions at all. Uh, and this is uh, a genetic difference. Yes. This is not simply because they've been raised in unfavorable circumstances no. or in a violent family. No, this, this is, is people a- who were born that way, who grew up in, grew up in, in, in with, with uh, exemplary uh, parents and, and siblings and had a wonderful upbringing, and they exhibited this complete lack of empathy for another human being. Now, on that point, so it's accepted, and it's a fact that there are people on this planet, a lot of them, statistically, it's one in 25, about five, four, five, six percent, somewhere around four, five, six percent of the population, which is about 360 million people. Now, if anybody else can give me a better explanation of why or of how, and it's really general, there's really government, Ehud Olmert, there's really prime, prime minister, how a person like that can order the Israeli Air Force to go and drop a one-quarter ton bomb on what they surely knew was a residential uh, accommodation with a family in it and kill the mother and father and seven children. To do, to do that consciously, somebody explained to me, give me a better explanation than the scientific proof that there are people who do not and cannot empathize and with another human being. Then look at what has happened in the last few days in Lebanon where Hezbollah captured two Israeli soldiers. The Israeli soldiers were in land that belonged to Lebanon that Israel captured and has been claiming now as their own. So this is effectively invaded 
Lebanese land, Hezbollah goes, captures two Israeli soldiers, and Israel declares war on the entire nation, and they're now bombing Beirut. They're telling the population in Beirut that they should evacuate. They bombed the airport. They've, they, they've, they've established a, an air and sea embargo on, on Lebanon, which is, a, which is a sovereign nation, bigger, slightly bigger than Israel. And Israel just, on, on the capture of two of their soldiers who were actually invading Lebanon and who, under completely normal and fair rules of war, would be captured, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that they weren't just killed but they were captured, Israel is now using this as justification to wholesale invade and embargo another country. And and, and the latest news that I saw, I I haven't actually read the article, I just saw the headline uh, before we started the podcast, was that uh, Hezbollah, uh, the the rumor is that uh, Hezbollah has taken these uh, two Israeli soldiers, uh, the, the prisoners that they took, they've been taken into Iran. Uh, as the, that's, yeah, that's, that's this was that's on Drudge. The, yeah, that was yeah, on, that was on the Drudge report. So, so now, <laughs> so you can see what they're trying to do. Oh yeah, they're, they're so trying sure to bring they Iran, got Syria, Syria. They've got Iran. They've got Lebanon. I mean, I mean you all know. of this is such a massive, massive setup. Oops. All of it has been provoked. Hmm. Is is being provoked by Israel? Israel wants to start a major war in the Middle East, so it can solve its Arab problem, i.e. It's problem with, with, with about three or four million Palestinians in Israel and in the occupied Palestinian territories, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iran. This is Israel's plan, and it's, it's right there in front of everyone's faces, and no one notices it. No one, no, one, no one seems to get it, mainly because the mainstream media is completely owned by Israel and owned by the American government. And you can take that to the bank. No. Or you can put that in your <laughs> put that in your pipe and smoke it. Mm-hmm. One kind of strange thing is is that I mean here's Israel and of course yes they have all these weapons I mean they have F-16s including were, nuclear weapons yeah an estimated 200 nuclear weapons although no one knows because they just say well we're not going to tell anyone and everyone else says oh, okay and then of course when they attack someone you know you have all these countries including several European countries who just say. Oh, you know, could could you just exercise a little bit of restraint, Israel? Because you know, we, you know, not to, you know, I mean, don't get mad at us, but you know, you're kind of slaughtering people and you know, bombing airports and stuff. Just, you know, could you kind of just could you ease maybe off a little? Just drop yeah. like one fewer bomb, maybe or something. You know, just kind of make everybody talk happy. about spinelessness. We're, talk we're about trying to control European the media, but if you, if you really go overboard, it may it may leak out, and that'd be really bad. I mean, the American government is long past. Anything other than, you know, all of them should be heading for the gallows so as we speak. But, I mean, some people might have thought that the European Union or European country leaders or European leaders of European countries or the UN would say something or do something practical, do something that really made a difference or really put some pressure on to stop it. And they're just a bunch of spineless yellow-bellied, low-down snakes. And I'd like to add that that applies also to Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, uh, Jordan, and most other Arab countries who have all sold out 100% to their own people and are going to burn in hell for it. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) 
quite possibly. Yeah, but I mean, you know, and so, you, so you've got all these countries, you know, the, in, in the Middle East. And, of course, you have a country like Iran, which is n- not exactly, you know, like this, you know, well, a toothless old Grishna cat, to use a Klingon expression. Yes. But, <laughs> and, and, you know, so, and of course, I mean, Israel has the backing of the United States at the moment. And so obviously Israel thinks that, well, they can just attack whoever they want because the, the, you know, the U.S. will back them up and, you know, good old George Bush will come, you know, riding in on his horse and, you know, but what happens if, if the U.S.'s support disappears or what happens if, you know, some little thing happens? I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be, there's going to be a counterattack and there's not going to be an Israel left. Well, I mean, Israel is violating like, you know, just about every single one of Sun Tzu's, you know, rules of war. I mean, they're. They're starting wars in other countries. They're going to end up. They're fighting. They're they're occupying a territory and fighting a war with a foreign. You know, in another country, they're invading. You know, and then they're going to, of course, automatically piss off all the allies of Lebanon. And there's someone else is going to join in. So they're going to make the the basic, you know, you know, Third Reich mistake of fighting a war on multiple fronts, which is like the worst mistake you can make. And they're just going to run themselves ragged. And well, you know, it's been our. Um kind of sneaking suspicion that uh, at some stage, once this kind of uh, Israeli-inspired or provoked uh, Middle Eastern war really gets going and they start killing lots of people uh, and things get really messy, that the American government is going to turn on Israel. And it's also our suspicion that Israel uh, is suspicious of this or suspects this. And it's playing its own games with the American government over 9-11. Because uh, right at this minute, there, over the past few days, there's been a lot of um, movement, let's say, a lot of progress, sudden and surprising progress is being made over the past week or two with uh, the 9-11 truth movement. A lot more scholars are kind of coming on board and people are appearing on uh, CNN and, 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 and Fox News. And it's getting, a, you know, it might it seems like it's getting kind of scary for maybe for the U.S. government because... You know, there's a lot of there's a lot more uh, heat, and this is in spite of the fact that over the past five years, uh, people like uh, us, Science of the Times, and uh, other alternative websites have been kind of screaming uh, bloody murder and doing everything possible to get even a tiny little bit of coverage, and with the mainstream media, and we get nothing uh, apart from obviously our Pentagon strike, but that was a that was a that was an aberration. Damage control. Yeah, but it was it, it was a one-off. But so the, the fact is that or the point I'm trying to make is that they um, it seems that uh, there's a lot of um, stuff is coming out around uh, on 9/11 that is putting pressure on the U.S. government. That is you know probably quite quite uh, scary for them. And I noticed that actually two new scholars that came on board today who have uh, who, who, are, who are publishing a, a book later this year. Yeah, these are two guys that are in, in, associated with Kevin Barrett. One of them is a, is a, a professor of Jewish studies at, uh, at the same university, I think, as Kevin Barrett at Wisconsin. So um, that just piqued my interest, and it kind of made me think about who really has the ability to expose the U.S. government, uh, because it's certainly not the alternative media. But there is, uh, obviously, the mainstream media would uh, could easily expose the U.S. government and do a lot of damage very quickly. And it seems to be kind of moving in that direction, uh, more so than before, more so than ever before at the minute. And I'm just wondering um, 
it just seems to be coincident, coincidental with the, with the whole Israeli aggression and uh, maybe the fact that America might not like some things that Israel is planning to do in the Middle East. But that's all just speculation, as I said, sneaking suspicions, but time will tell. Yeah, I mean, you know, for a culture that's, that's obsessed with watching movies and stuff like that, they can see a classic, they can see a classic black, blackmail plot, you know, unfolding right before their eyes and don't even realize it. Yes, we're talking about movies. (laughs) Moving us on to our final part, to the final part of our podcast this week. Jason, our special guest, who has been expressing himself very eloquently over the past half hour, is going to give us a rundown of ten of the most important movies, in his opinion, and he has a very weighty opinion here in this matter because Jason has watched a lot of movies. Uh, these a are ten lot. movies, ten movies that uh, he believes are extremely important for understanding the world and uh, aspects of human nature. Maybe a bit of all and everything, really. A bit of all and everything. So, are these going to be movies that anybody's actually seen? Um, anybody who lives in America certainly, and anybody who came of age in the nineties definitely. And for the rest of us, if you've got BitTorrent, you can find them. And <laughs> we can't endorse that kind of thing. Go down. Now, these movies are all very good movies, and so you should buy them to support the companies and the making of those movies. So I'm going to educate the ignorant masters about the uh, about the wonders of, of talkies. So I was asked at one point to, to come up with a list of uh, five films that were – you know, essential for understanding human interaction dynamics, uh, the universe, the world, life, whatever you wanna, whatever you wanna say it as, just sort of like understanding things. So unfortunately, I couldn't pick just five; I had to pick ten. <laughs> and, and that well, that's was, why we only asked for you for five. If we'd asked you for yeah. ten, you would have come back with twenty. Yeah, well, this list was distilled from twenty. <laughs> I had to, I had to pick and choose. So uh, the list runs uh, starting from 10 down. There's uh, Pretty in Pink, number 10, <laughs> which a lot of people might have a problem with, but yeah, uh, no, it's I, very essential. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to agree with that one because I've always loved that movie. Pretty in Pink, fabulous movie. Excellent. Unrequited love. Never totally seen fabulous. it. Uh, number nine is Don Juan DeMarco, the one with Johnny Depp and Marlon Brando. Excellent movie. American Beauty. Uh, number seven is Election with uh, Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon. Number six is Beautiful Girls. Number, well, By the way, Natalie Portman's in that one. <laughs> uh, number five is definitely The Wizard of Oz. Had to be added into the list. Number four, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Number three, Donnie Darko. And number two, The Matrix. And I kind of mix Matrix and 13th Floor because it came out in the same year and they really had very similar yeah. ideas behind them, but they both actually cover two different aspects of what I consider to be esoteric thought. One really really talks about the meaning of consciousness, the meaning of the soul, and the meaning of free will, whereas The Matrix is mostly really exposing sort of like uh, the hyperdimensional aspects of the world and, you know, controllers and, you know, false reality and agents and all that kind of stuff, which is also included in the 13th floor. And, of course, at number one, the movie that everyone has to watch, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> okay. If if only to see Captain Kirk scream. Khan! <laughs> yes, that that is famous and has been parodied in so many television shows, cartoons. Okay, well then, books. going back to Pretty in Pink. Right. 
What, what is it? Pretty in Pink? <laughs> Enlighten me. Why do I need to see Pretty in Pink? Unrequited Love. I think it is the best, the best dramatization of of the 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 sappy the sappy guy in love with the, the the pretty girl who's in love with the you know rich guy type thing. Totally, it's uh, it's basically a story of unrequited love. The character Ducky is in love with Andy. Is her name Andy? Who's in love with Blaine? Okay, but these are typical names, by the way, from <laughs> the 1980s. <laughs> you know, so it, it's a really good story, and uh, it had it had a really good it had an impact on me because you know, I'm a sucker for teen films. You know, I you know it was that was my coming of age time, and you know they were really popular. So, so what is it about unrequited love that uh, is it just just love that is, is, well, is, is the point, essence here? Well, at one the character from Babylon 5, Susan Ivanova, comments after Marcus Cole dies that, that all love is unrequited. And it's, is this in Pretty in Pink or is this in no, Babylon, Babylon 5? No, Babylon 5. Jesus, Susan Ivanova. Well, I thought maybe she was also <laughs> in Pretty in Pink. No. <laughs> okay, let, let's stick with, stick with Pretty in Pink here. Yeah, unrequited love. Yeah. Right, yeah. Pr- unrequited love. So you're saying right, that... Right. So, so, so a discussion of dealing with it, because the character Ducky learns to, to just deal with it and move past it and realize that he's in love with this person who's not in love with him, is never going to love him back, and that it's not really you know some sort of untainted love, which we'll get to later when we talk about Don Juan DeMarco, that it wasn't really like an untainted love. He was just... It wasn't really a lust either. It was kind of a love, but he had attached these romantic aspects to it. And so he comes to terms with that, and he deals with it. So it's it's a good, pretty story. It's you know, cried at the end when you know she gets in. The, she okay, so do you hold to the opinion that unrequited love, that all love is unrequited, more or less, in this in this life? You know, I I think that it's an interesting idea, and I think for some people it is. I think that that to help people to deal with the fact that sometimes you're not in the incarnation where you're going to you know meet some you know if you think polar opposites and soulmates. That you're not ready, you're not prepared, you're not set up to meet them, and you you have to learn to get through this life without it, you know. So that in some people's experience, all love is unrequited. So it's a good lesson there in Pretty in Pink to learn how to deal with that that reality. Okay, yeah. number nine, Don Juan DeMarco, one of my favorite films. Um, I have this whole Don Juan versus uh, Giacomo Casanova thing, whereas Don Juan. Is this character, which is he, he's really you know the the smooth pimp daddy, but he's also actually you know he, he's a decent person. Whereas Casanova was pretty blatantly, you know, a bastard. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, all of his, all of all Casanova was more of like a charlatan slash impersonator. I mean, he was a con artist. You know, his 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 biography is just loaded with evidence that basically says that he was making it all up. He was pretty much. He was more. He was more of a pervert, but on a very low level. I mean, he wasn't like at the level of, say, Marquis de Sade was, you know, a level of perversity that is, you know, quite. <laughs> that shouldn't be talked about. It shouldn't be talked about. And whereas, isn't going to be talked about. <laughs> or Casanova. <laughs> Casanova is kind of. He's just a manipulator and a psychopath, and you know, he. Have you seen Fellini's film, uh, Casanova, with Donald Sutherland? No, I haven't, but I actually probably would like to. It's extremely depressing because that's exactly the kind of figure it portrays. He, he was he was he was he was essentially a charlatan. You know, I mean, he spent he spent the later part of his life, you know, manipulating old women out of their money. Mm-hmm. You know, pretending to be a psychic and stuff so. Like just that. drawing a link here between number nine and ten, obviously uh, the, the the Don Juan character um, could be a source of a lot of this unrequited love. Uh, <laughs> Most in, in likely, life, yes, right? yes. Yeah. Yeah, we've source. identified the source of the problem. No. Okay. And and of course, Don Juan actually does have. An experience with with unrequited love because his love the person he considers to be his soulmate donna anna 
you know, he can't be with her because she can't seem to deal with his past experiences, you know. So that's another interesting interesting thing that I thought was very great. And even though, you know, that, that sort of thing is happening and even though he tries to commit suicide in the film, he does kind of learn to deal with it and move on and he does learn to help other people and he does make some very insightful comments about love. He's just like, you know, where do I have it written down? Oh, yeah, it says there are only four questions of value in life, Don Octavio. What is sacred? Of what is the spirit made? And what is worth living for? And what is worth dying for? The answer to each is the same, only love. So I think that that one comment really, really stuck with me for a long time, that it was really sort of kind of an insightful thing to say that, that love comprises all those things, you know, is comprised of all those things. And this is Don Juan said this. Yeah, this is Don Juan said So he understood this, but he was, um, I mean, he, he wasn't someone who actually ascribed to... Uh, no, no, no. At a certain point in his life, when he came to, he finally found this woman, Donna Anna. That's oh. the one that he wanted to be with, but he couldn't. Okay. You know. All right. Hmm. Number eight. American Beauty. Wow, fabulous film. Okay. Um, I kind of had some problems with the last lines of this stuff, you know, when he starts talking about, you know, beauty and all life is beautiful and stuff like that. And from a certain level, sure. From a certain level, yeah, like maybe you know from some other world looking down. <laughs> yeah, it, all life might be beautiful, but not everything in the world is beautiful. So I didn't agree with that, but I did really like the story of the suburban hell and uh, the character Lester Burnham trying to break out of this suburban hell of his wife, who is blatantly, you know, I don't want to say psychopathic, but she really does have those sort of tendencies of a person who really is, you know, doesn't have these emotions. She's really kind of actually evil, you know. He's breaking away from his wife who is manipulating and controlling him, you know, and he's, he's trying to live his life the way he would like it. He's trying to make his own choices instead of having someone else make them for him. And, of course, you know, he ends this – spoiler, sorry. He ends up getting shot in the back of the head in the end, but, you know, at least he tried oh, to get Oh, now I don't have to see the movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You haven't seen American Beauty? No. Yeah, oh, well. So uh, I, I, spoiler for Henry. Yeah, I actually liked the, the movie American Beauty quite a bit, and, and I – I would tend to agree with you know your your assessments about you know when he talks about uh, you know beauty and and that whole thing. I mean you know yeah, what I found most interesting about it was how it sort of reveals and and and, and not just in American life but even you know in in kind of like you know uh, America as like a country and even you know in, in in every country and like on a planetary scale or like in you know from a political perspective that you know there is the 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 image that we would all like to believe and then there is what is actually true and so to me it was sort of a symbolic representation in addition to being kind of you know more literally true i think you know even on a symbolic level it was kind of interesting how uh you know it's it's everyone works really hard to like maintain this illusion that like everything is okay when in reality when you really start digging and looking uh you know it's kind of not so good Right. It ties so, right in back to the Zizu stuff where we're talking about people who aren't standing up for themselves. And the movie is basically about a person who finally gets to the breaking point. He can't take any more from his wife. He can't take any more from his kid who is you know, treating him bad. He can't take any more from his life that is mediocre and unfulfilling. And you know, he's not doing what he wanted to do. He's not doing what he thinks he should be doing. You know, he's trapped in this job as like a telemarketer essentially. And so he finally says no. You know, and he does it in some very creative and very humorous ways. And there's there's a good story behind the whole thing, but it is really about someone you know turning around and saying no. So the message there is: strive to get out of mediocrity. 
Well, yeah, yeah. But don't get shot in the head. Well, you know, he does because that gets him out, doesn't it? Well, that's a bit depressing. Yeah. Surely, uh, well, you know, okay. life life is a depressing, you know, I mean, Dante once said, you know, you know, life is a series of down moments. By the way, Dante from Clerks. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, life is just a series of down moments. Which we know that Jason so, really wanted to put on his list. but I didn't put, no, I didn't want to put Clerks. I wanted to put Chasing Amy, but I oh, dropped okay. that one. Okay. Because talking about the subject matter would. <laughs> so moving on to number seven then. Election. Okay, now this movie is the best. It's a, sort of consider it to be a, a dramatic documentary of of a born psychopath, and how insidiously evil they are in their in, in their own way. Uh, the character Reese Witherspoon is a high school student of Jim McAllister, who is played by who who's played by uh, Matthew Broderick, and the young girl is running for class president. And this is directly after she has an affair with one of her teachers who is the best friend of Jim McAllister and the teacher gets arrested and all this kind of stuff. And he, and he goes through this horrible thing and she's, she's trying to manipulate the election and she, she's so sure that she is the best person the, and, he, and he is, is just convinced that she's evil and he's, and he's looking forward in time to, to what the world will be like if she becomes like president or something like that. And he's saying, you know, this has got to stop. You know, I can't, I can't let this happen. At one point, she says uh, they have this whole little praying montage thing where they come in and, and she says, Dear Lord Jesus, I do not often speak with you and ask, and ask you for things, but now I really must insist that you help me win the election tomorrow because I deserve it. And Paul Metzler doesn't. As you well know, I realize that it was your divine hand that disqualified Tommy Metz, Tammy Metzler, and now I'm asking that you do that one last mile and make sure to put me in office where I belong so that I may carry out your will on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Mm. Yeah, that that's just so fitting for <laughs> Considering the entire George world w. today. Bush. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she really is, she, uh, the character really is uh, a great study and what I consider a born psychopath, someone who is, mm-hmm. who is messed up. Genetic. Genetic, you know. Right, um, no cure for that one. No, I mean she's just the the pure kind of evil, and and just the the unemotional, nonchalant way that she ruins you know two teachers' careers. You know, even though it, it was them making bad choices, but she sort of you know, she she like leaves the cuts the swath across high school of of of, of destroyed people. Okay, number six. Yeah. Number six. Beautiful girls. I actually haven't seen this movie in years and years and years, but I do remember it, uh, one part of it had had such a profound effect on me was the interaction between Marty and Willie when they were talking about Winnie the Pooh and you know Christopher Robin created Winnie the Pooh as a figment of his imagination, but as he grew up, he couldn't have it. So um, Beautiful Girls is really a movie about getting a handle on your life and your emotions and wishful thinking, you know, and uh, self-evaluation and also the necessity for going back and, and getting connected with people. The, the main character, Willie, has to go back to his hometown. You know, he's having this midlife-type crisis thing. He's having these real problems. So he goes back to his his town and gets together with his friends, and he's trying to work out all of his problems. So it's a great drama, and there's a lot of a lot of pithy quotes in the movie that I thought was really good and uh, interesting discussions. So, Okay. Number five, The Wizard of Oz. I think that that the should Wizard be of Oz. so there's, there's obvious. What I have seen. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if we have to even explain that one because if, if you don't know why you have to see that, then yeah, there's no hope for you. Yeah, well, The Wizard of Oz. Well, I let's hope. just say there's some very, very direct kind of references to esoteric work 
in The Wizard of Oz, yeah. dealing with each of the characters and the roles they play. Right. And, and I will draw, draw everyone's attention to the similarities between The Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Because they really they have the same concept and structure. They have the 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 quartet, the three people, the three individuals that represent you know emotional, intellectual, and physical, and then you have the guide type person that leads them down the road to Oz. So I would point that out. All okay. right, number four. Number four, the talented Mr. Ripley. This is probably one of the eeriest films I have seen in a long time. Not for any kind of gore or grossness, but just for. The character Tom Ripley is just eerie, and I would kind of call him the created psychopath, you know, that he seems to be someone who's been really abused, and he's underclass and very poor, and he's, you know, had this this, this terrible life, and, you know, it turns him kind of like he, he, you know, he becomes a, a sort of a con man type individual where he's an impersonator and a forger, and he ends up... Uh, he ends up uh, finding a, a Princeton jacket, and he goes to a party and uh, starts mooching off the rich people, and he makes a friend with uh, this big rich guy whose son is off in Europe, and the, the rich guy offers to pay him $1,000 to go get his son and bring him back and convince him to come back. So he goes, and he ends up, you know, you know, there's sort of this whole homoerotic undertone with him, with him and uh, the character Dickie Greenleaf, played by Jude Law. And he eventually ends up killing him and assuming his identity and then going about pretending to be him. And then, of course, after a while, he kind of gets found out and people find him out. So he escapes and then he sort of at the end, he he does it again. He starts the whole dynamic over again, you know, with another person. So, so that's so the, it has a happy ending. <clears throat> there's a very happy ending. You know, there's death, gore destruction. Yeah. So that's the made psychopath, the created psychopath as, yeah. a, as a result of societal... Right pressures or society in general yeah there's a lot of those around today i mean mean, you know sure why not you know he's the type of person that i mean you know of course it's fiction so i'm just saying that what i saw in it was the idea that that a person can either be you know bad to the bone you know the bad seed type person you know which a movie that maybe should have ended up on the list the bad seed but um that a person can either be born that way or they can be made that way you know, uh-huh. by other psychopaths and et cetera and so forth. Mm-hmm. So why not? We're down to number three. Yeah, we're down to number three. Uh, the third one is definitely Donnie Darko. Okay. Donnie Darko, yeah. There's a movie that that has multiple, multiple layers, you know, from time, reincarnation, choice, you know, just the journey from, you know, one level of existence to the next, you know, if you want to talk about one level from, from one density to the next, you know, graduation, relationships with God, you know, fate, destiny, time loops, however you want to apply it. There's things in the movie that apply to so many different ideas. All mundane, everyday stuff. Yeah, all mundane. Stuff that happens all the time, <laughs> Stuff right? that happens all the time. But no one knows it. Yeah. yeah. You mean people don't talk about this around kitchen tables all <laughs> over the world? Of course they do. I think they do. All right, Donnie Darko. Yeah, that's one to see. Um, Fantastic movie. Very creepy. Number two. Number two, The Matrix and 13th Floor. The Matrix should kind of be obvious because it gets talked about all the time. Okay, Um, so we won't talk about it. Yeah, I mean, personally, I I wasn't too big of a fan of The Matrix. Too big. I mean, I really liked it for the action scenes, but, uh, you know. Well, I, I just thought it was... He just put that one in there for us. I put that one in there for would, you guys. If I you were given the choice, would you take the red pill or the blue pill? I, which one was which? I forgot. 
The red, red pill, pill press. The red pill was. To <laughs> Think about that for a minute and see. The if red pill was to know. It's not making it. I'm not getting it here. The red pill was to know the truth. Right. The blue pill was to go back to reality, uh, illusion. Well, I mean, I'm sure I would probably not really know unless. Would I was you ask in the for situation. a different color one? Can I say? Can you I take half pick. of both? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there another option? No. I want to sit on the fence. <laughs> No, I mean, answering that question, I mean, you know, what could, that's not really a fair question. I mean, because, you know, I could say yes and I could say no and it wouldn't mean anything because I'm not in that situation, you know. Well, you are in that situation every day, but. Yeah, exactly. You know, if I was actually there with Lawrence Fishburne, I would probably do whatever he said because he's kind of a beefy guy, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, kind of afraid. Like, okay, <laughs> like, I'll take a red Which one did I take? Is that related to free will at all? Free will, Shmirel. <laughs> There you have He's folks. a star. <laughs> He's Free a movie will, star. Yeah. All right. So, Heard it here first. number one. Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Why is this the number one? Okay. Other than for Kirk. Uh, the the order is not important, by the way. I mean, they're just ordered. Well, this is our on. number one. Come on. Let's yeah. lay it on. So what's, what's number one? People should see the number one movie because. Everyone should see, everyone should see The Wrath of Khan. Why? Oh, okay. What are they going to learn? Start, what are they going to learn? What are you going to learn from any movie? You learn what you want to learn. You well, learn what, what you're open to. Well, well, you're undercutting here what the whole anyway. premise of this podcast okay. <laughs> is about. <laughs> so, in, right, the, in the, the final minutes. <laughs> yeah, I'm undercutting the whole thing. It's destroyed. It's destroyed. No. Uh, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Great classic tale. I mean, it's pretty much uh, based off of Moby Dick, you know, which is a tale of revenge. And, uh, you know, it really does... I like the fact that it sort of covers the, the revenge aspect and the whole thing, that it's really kind of a futile pursuit to, to go after revenge. Does Captain Kirk end up floating through space on a piece of the Enterprise or something? <laughs> no. No? <laughs> strapped to yeah. – Yeah. Or does he end up strapped to a Klingon warship or something? That's... No, no, no. And, and, and uh, Khan, Khan dies in the end. Okay. And um, – but you also have the, the, the whole – factor of dealing with death and you have the Kirk character's problems with it and his inability to sort of deal and cope with that and the fact that he sort of gets forced in the situation with Spock who sacrifices himself which is again you know an interesting thing and then there's the, the main the, the core concept about that I really really liked was the Kobayashi Maru exercise um, which was, was that? The, the no win situation the situation in which you cannot win which uh, I think is is something that a lot of people should think about. You know, being a martial artist is something that I think about quite a bit. Is the situation where, you know, there's always going to be the situation where you cannot win, in which you have to at one point, you know, you will not be able to win and it's over. And that's sort of you know a lot of people are very afraid of thinking of that kind of thing. They're very afraid of of understanding that life in and of itself is a no win situation because you cannot get out of life alive. You know. Well, that brings us back to Zinedine Zidane. You put right. your head down, and you go forward. Exactly, you know, you go forward, and and you don't let it. You don't let. The, but there's a lot of people that don't let it bother them in the way that they never consider it, and that they're not aware of it. They try to delete it from their awareness, which is a negative thing. Whereas you really should consider the fact, you know. So you, I mean, would you say that they're facing into this reality of life, and essentially being in a no-win situation? That this is like this is a good thing for people to do. Yes, of course. Why not? You should face into that. And well, you should face reality as often as possible. Yeah. Well, Let's try. Well, then, then aren't you, you answering the question about whether you take yeah, the red well, pill or the blue pill? You're a red well, pillar. You are. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you can't get it from that. I mean, I could be making the whole thing up. 
Yeah. You know, but yeah, we know we you're not. <laughs> I saw you slipping that red pill in there. there you take one every, take one every day. Yeah. Well, that about wraps up our show for this week, folks. See you later. Bye. <laughs> well, on that, we will end it for this week. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed it. We do. Yes, we all hope you have enjoyed the show. If you'd like to <laughs> talk about any of the subjects that we've raised in tonight's show, be it joining into the discussion on Zinedine Zidane, uh, talking about the horrendous crimes that Israel is committing and will continue to commit under the banner of the ultimate victimization, or whether it's comments on the films that Jason brought up or films that maybe you think are films that are important to see to better understand our world, you can come to the Signs of the Times forum. There is a link from the Signs of the Times page, and the address for Signs of the Times is www.signs-of-the-times.org. So thank you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.